episode 14 of The Business We've Chosen. Guest today, coming to you live from England, is Jake. Jake, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I think you're the first non-American that's been on the show as a guest. Um, so why don't you just tell us, like, how, what's the situation like in England right now? Where are you posted up at? How are things going in England? Um, well, I'm, I'm in the I'm in the Midlands, so um, it's pretty boring here. Not not a lot happens, but um, yeah. Um, obviously, we've had the um, a pretty rough time with the COVID. Um, had a three month lockdown pretty much, so um, that's not been very good. But um, starting to release some stuff now. Um, I mean, even from as of last week, you couldn't even ha- you couldn't even play golf, so um, that was pretty pretty bad. Um, but that wow. that got allowed last week and um, I don't know why it seems like a strange decision really I mean the risk is pretty much um, non-existent but um, I think there was some probably some politics involved because I mean they they closed all the schools as well so um, you know I I think it would have been a bit um, bit dubious if they'd have allowed um, outdoor sports back before schools reopened so um, I think that was probably the reason why but um, it's been pretty rough but um, when you're like locked down, how do you go to the grocery store? Or I assume you're allowed to go to that. It just is more like recreational activities that would be closed or banned yes, from being yeah, open. So anything, yeah, anything non-essential really is is um, is not allowed. Um, but you can go, you know, you can go grocery shopping or um, you know to collect um, medical medical stuff or for um, medical appointments. But anything non-essential is, and you can you can you know you can go to the park and have a walk around or whatever. Um, so that's allowed, but um, no sort of um, congregating with people or um, any sort of unnecessary contact. Um, that's all bad. So how um, how necessary is betting snooker and golf matchups deemed? Um, well, not necessary, I'm afraid. So um, in in retail anyway. So that's been um, that outlet was lost for for a few months, which wasn't ideal. But it is what it is. You know, you can't. Um, yeah, um, it's hard to justify opening the betting shop when um, you know there's hundreds of people dying every day. So um, yeah, I understand it, but um, not going to lie, it was a bit of a hit. But it is what it is. So when you when you're making your bets, usually, like what percent of your volume, or how often are you going to some shop that is now closed but normally would be open to make this bet? Are they like? on every corner in every town like what's the how many of them are there you know what i mean what are they what's the, yeah. what's it look like um there's about there's about five to six thousand shops in um in the uk so that's england scotland um wales and northern ireland so there's about six thousand shops um used to be more but um you know betting a lot of betting's moved online so obviously the demand for um actual physical locations goes down um, it's probably about sixty percent of volume, I would say. Um, so it's, but um, you know, so all the if everything was open as normal, it would be sixty percent. But um, I have been able to shift some online. But um, yeah, in, in a you know in, in a normal non-COVID world, it would be about sixty percent. Yeah. So is the place that you live in England? Did you pick it because there's a lot of betting shops nearby? Um, are the betting shops kind of uniformly laid out throughout England or what is that 
look like? Are you driving 45 minutes frequently to get bets down? Um, I, I didn't, I didn't pick it because of um, the number of betting shops, although there are, there are, there are quite a few here. Um, they tend to be, um, unfortunately, the, the nature of the beast is that they, they tend to be um, quite well grouped in deprived areas. Um, just because, you know, people, you tend to get that, um, you know, people just try and um, not, not blast their way out of um, poverty, but, um, you know, there's not a lot else for them to do. And, you know, it's kind of, it's just what they do. They kind of sit in the bookies all day and just punt until they've got no money left, which is a bit sad, really, but whatever. Um, yeah, that kind of sounds I mean, like the the OTBs in the US, where if you go into one of those, it's, it's like, how do these people have money to be making these bets? I kind of feel the same way in Vegas casinos too, where guys who look like they're homeless are betting more money at roulette than I would be betting. And I'm like a gambler, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I mean, these guys aren't betting big money. They're just betting, I mean, they're betting pennies really. But, you know, if you bet, if you, if you, if you bet pennies enough times, then um, it can um, quickly mount up. And if you haven't got a lot, then... Um, I suppose the the result is inevitable, really. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I, I will um, I, I will drive out, but not um, I'll just just to um, kind of mix it up, sort of thing. So um, you know, if you keep winning in one place, then that's not good because eventually you're going to get kicked out, or you know, people red flag is going to go up. So um, yeah, have to mix it up a bit. But um, yeah, um, don't have to do that as much as maybe some people think but um yeah we'll do occasionally are the places all run by the same main uh heads i guess or the same companies or are there like 50 different line sets conceivably out there are they all using each other's lines i assume um kind of so there's i mean there are um there's four main operators really well say five um, you've got Labrooks, Corals, William Hill, um, Betfred, and Paddy Power. Those would be the main five. Um, and then there's a few smaller operators who, um, who you know, they've, they've got you know anywhere between one and say 20 shops. Um, Megabet would be one of those, for example. Um, Jennings, Ball Sports. Of um, they're an Irish bookie. Um, they've started to come over now and open a few shops around me, which is good. Um, although I got kicked out of one last year, so um, that was a bit disappointing, but move on. Um, <laughs> and then um, in terms of lines, I mean, I mean, you could have a long conversation about this, but um, there's basically there's basically two sets, there's basically two situations. So you can bet over the counter, which most bookmakers will um, will will let you bet into their um, their own lines that are the the same or close to on the internet. Um, there are a few differences in retail um, betting shops. You tend to get a, a bit of a haircut on the price because um, you know there's higher operational costs and um, less competition with other bookmakers. So, um, for example, if it's like um, I don't know plus two hundred on the internet, then um, you might get plus one ninety in the betting shop. Um, depends on which sport as well. That's much more common on football. On golf and other sports, you tend to get the same prices. Um, but then you can there's also self-service machines which you can use, which are pretty good. Um, and those tend to have just one set of odds, um, and that's done by an external provider. Um, so 
although there's there's um, pros and cons to that. So the bad thing is that you've got only got one set of odds, and it's not too competitive usually. Um, so you're kind of limited in terms of line shopping, etc. But um, you, the, the good news is is that you you can get quite a bit on if um, if you bet smart and um, you know kind of know how to spread the money around. So that that's the advantage. Um, and the, the the odds are usually pretty on market. So um, you know they're not taking many opinions um, or stances against um, the market. But um, you do get the odd slow price or whatever. You know odds are slow to move or whatever. But um, yeah, generally you you're taking market price or just under market price. But that, that's not too bad if if you really fancy one and you know you or you're you know if a if a market price is really badly wrong then um, you know you can you can get quite a bit down. At those self-service kiosks, do you have to like log in with your info and name, or is it you just put in some cash and hit the button and you get a bet? Yeah, you just put just put cash in, um, or you can use um, you can use old winning slips. So, say you've got um, five hundred to return off a slip, then you can scan the slip and then use that on another bet. So that's pretty good. Um, but yeah, it's it's cash and there's, it's totally anonymous, so no logging in or anything like that. So theoretically, you could bet it more than once, or did, will the manager come over and be like, "Hey, you you you've been there for ten minutes or something"? Uh, yeah, you can bet you can bet more than once. Um, I mean, you so, so each shop will have like a limit um, as to what you can bet, and it won't let you bet anymore. Like it will just flat out reject the bet. Um, but then you can go to different shops and try and get more on there. Um, there's not a lot to stop you doing that. Um, of course, the the head office. Um, you know the traders in head office can um, can see the bets coming through and they might decide to to cut the price or whatever um and then obviously you can't get any more wrong because um, the price is gone but um yeah there's there's nothing in, in theory if the price is still there there's nothing to stop you um getting more on and are there actual traders on the other end or is it something like you know bet online moving their odds are there people that you know who are working at these places actually monitoring all these markets and occasionally shifting them uh yeah yeah there, there will be um so um i think the the, the company that does um most of the self-service terminals has quite a big team of um people monitoring but um yeah i mean there's no automatic monitor um movement like um a pinnacle or anything like that but um if traders see bets coming in they they will move the price yeah and some of it, I think, is, I think a bit of it is automated. Um, so if, um, you know, if there's a move in Asia for a football team or whatever, then, um, you know, the, the odds on the terminal will, will move automatically, I think, without consulting any, any trader or anything like that. Um, so some of it's automated. And then I think other sports are quite, um, quite manually done. And what are the limits like at most of these in, ter- in like US dollars or pounds or whatever? Like two hundred or a thousand or what can you bet on these kiosks and at the counter at a at a typical retail shop? I mean, yeah, over the counter limits aren't great. So, um, you know, so what happens is if you ask for over the counter, this is if you ask for a bet that's greater than the um, their internal risk limits, which they won't divulge. So, um, you know, and it varies quite a lot as well. So, um, you know a lot of the time it just depends what sort of what member of staff you get um 
So if you get a bit of a jobs worth staff, then um, he might, he or she might ring the um, might ring the uh, traders up for authorization on a on a bet, even for a small bet. Um, some of it, some sometimes it's jobs worth, and sometimes it's um, just incompetence, like you know, cashier or whatever, new to the job, scared of losing a job because she's taken a bet over the limits or whatever. Um, so the limits are pretty small over the counter. Um, so I mean, there are there are ways around it. You, you know, you can go around multiple shops and send multiple people in and stuff like that. Um, on the on the SSBTs, the limits are okay. Um, I mean, it, it tends to be you know a lot of UK um, risk management solutions are, tend to be um, they don't tend to be on stake. They tend to be on liability. So it will be um, you know they'll lay you a bet to win five hundred quid, thousand. But, you know, it depends on the market. Golf outrides are a bit more because, you know, normally big prices. So um, having a 500 max takeout wouldn't be very good if you wanted to bet, you know, 100 to 1 chance. Um, you should only get Sounds five like a bet online after, uh, after mid-rounds on the PGA Tour sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, um, it depends on the market, really. But you can, you know, you can normally get a bet to win 500 quid, 1,000, um, have that a couple of times and... Um, yeah, you can soon you can soon rack up some positions. Nice. And what are the main things that the the blokes in the retail shop are betting? Is it mostly football or horses or golf? What are they usually betting on? Um, sadly, not golf, because um, then I'd be able to get more on um, some bets. Um, but no, ma- mainly horses and football. Um, those are the those are the two, and those tend to be ninety percent um of what the turnover is i mean you do get some you know you do you will see golf bets um for, for the big tournaments like the masters um british open stuff like that um it tends to be pretty small um week to week although um you know I speak to a few people in the industry and it it, it can it can mount up i mean you, you, what you tend you won't tend to get any really big bets but um you know i mean there's there's five there's five thousand shops nationwide so you know, you only need a couple of guys to bet a tenner on golf in each shop, and all of a sudden that's quite a quite a bit of turnover on the week. Um, and especially the prices that you know an, an average outright golfer, an average golfer is to win outright. Um, you know, you can soon um, pretty quickly rack up some decent liabilities, um, even off really small bets. When they're betting the horses, are they just getting the tote odds? Or are there a loyalty program you can get where you get part off of it? Or how does the horse tracing work for like a regular person? Yeah, so I'd say over 99% of it is, is fixed odds. You can bet tote, but um, no one bothers because the product is so bad. Um, takeouts are pretty obscene and um, it, the fixed odds products much better. Um, so for fixed odds, you can obviously, you know, you just bet at whatever the... Um, whatever the odds are available at the time. Um, you can also take SP, which is starting price. So um, that the starting price is returned by um, a sort of semi-independent um, body called the Press Association who gather up all the bookmaker odds and um, release like um, a consensus closing line. Um, so that's the, that's the starting price. Um, so you can bet a starting price as well if, if no odds are available to take. But... In, you know, there's always there's always a fixed odds price available to take in in practice. Um, so that's what well, they have fixed odds. Then, 
is it for win place show trifecta can you bet like all the usual stuff in the fixed odds or is it only for winning basically uh no you um so we, we don't have um i mean we do have place and show odds but um what, what tends to happen is that you get most people will bet win um or they'll bet something called each way um so each way is when you have a win bet and then you have a place bet um but the place odds aren't you don't get an individual place price what you get is you get a divisor of the win price so um say a horse is 10 to 1 and you place 10 pounds each way you'll get 10 pound to win at 10 to 1 and then you'll also get 10 pound to place um and those place odds are directly correlated to the the win odds um and there's a divisor um that that specifies that depending on the number of runners in the race and whether um whether the race is a handicap or not um and that also determines how many places you get paid out on so if there's if there's four or fewer runners you can you can't bet each way you can only bet win only um and if a bet's taken in error um if an each way bet is taken in error then it gets settled as a win only bet for the full stake um for seven runners or sorry five to seven runners you get paid on two on two places um eight to 15 runners you get paid out on three places and 16 runner races you get paid out on four places um, and then the, the way that the divisor works varies depending on whether the race is a handicap race or not. Um, pretty, it's, it's not complicated, but um, yeah, the rules are pretty archaic and they don't make too much sense in today's market. But um, it's what it's what betters are used to. So that's what goes, really. Have you ever bet real money on horse races or is that a fool's errand almost entirely? No, I mean, I... I so I used to, um, not real money, but, um, you know, I'd, I'd have a bet, but, um, I, I only tend to bet recreational, um, money these days on horses. Um, it's not really, um, you know, the, the, the people that are out there that are doing it properly are doing it properly and it's very hard to beat them. Um, and then, I mean, so, I mean, it, it's the, it's the same situation as sports really. Um, if you focused on it, then early lines are pretty beatable on horse racing, fixed odds, but you can't really get any, any worthwhile while money down. Um, you get kicked out of the shops pretty easy because the the concept of closing line value in sports in the UK is, you know, people know about it, but um, it's not really, you, you know, you, you wouldn't get, people don't obsess about it in the same way that they would in the US, whereas because there's a, there's a starting price and kind of a, na- a natural closing line in, in horse racing, it's pretty easy to see if someone's beating the closing line, you know, consistently, and that will just get you kicked out because no one, no one wants to take that business. Um, there's nothing anyone can really do with it. Um, so, yeah, I tend to find that betting sports is much more worthwhile um, in terms of effort and, you know, getting on and stuff like that, um, as opposed to betting on uh, on horse on horses so what sports are you mainly betting then uh golf um snooker um a bit of nfl although i'm not not really producing any of my own numbers um i'll just bet off market stuff if i can find something um or like player props where something looks you know something really obvious is is going to happen like a, you know first string running backs not playing and the second strings like you know four to one to score a touchdown and so you know 
you'd have to be even, it doesn't take a genius to, to work out that's a, a decent bet. But um, yeah, just betting off, off market stuff with the NFL. But golf and snooker, I've produced my own numbers. Um, so I'm you know happy to bet at market prices for those. What is the snooker market like? Is that is there an event once a week and there's like a best of 64 bracket or something and some guy wins the tournament? Or how does the how does the actual tour take place? Is there one of them? Are there a few? Is it like country-based? Yeah, so there's one tour. I mean, the, the COVID is obviously, um, I think it's probably best to talk about it how it was maybe a couple of years ago because there's been a few changes with COVID and, um, you know, I think eventually it will come back to how it was. So, um, yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's like you say, it's like you described in the in the first instance in that um, you tend to get a bracket with, it's 128 players who are on the tour. Um, so there'll be 128 player bracket. And then, um, yeah, there's, you know, last last one to eight matches, last 64 matches all the way down to, you know, quarters, semis, final. Um, and there's match betting available on all those. And um, you can also bet, you know, a player to win the tournament or player to win his half of the draw or even a player to win his quarter of the draw. So, um, yeah, there's plenty of, plenty of betting opportunities for snooker. Um, there's obviously quite a few matches, um, but um, market the market's got a lot better, I would say, the last few years. I mean, in you know, 2015, 16, it was really, you know, it was, it was quite quite easy to win. Um, I, I'm not sure why or how it, it it's firmed up so much. Um, maybe, you know, maybe just. Um, compiling techniques have got better at the firms or, or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, I used to regularly make players like, you know, I, for example, I'd regularly make um, games pick them where you could get like plus 180 or plus 200 on, on one of the guys, which, um, you know, and even even in back testing, so you'd back test it and, you know, it all looked pretty good. And um, it's not one of those situations where the true price should have been like, you know, plus 155, which is, you know, usually the case when you've got a model that's um, that's off by that much. But, you know, the, the game was, you know, these games were actually pick'em games and they were going off, you know, plus 180, etc. cetera. Um, but that kind of dried up um, a few years ago. Um, so it's not as easy as it was, but, um, yeah, it used to be pretty lucrative. How does the game of snooker work? I mean, I, like, know how to play pool, I think. But we you, you'll play, like, nine ball or alternating you know stripes and solids the game of snooker like how how good is the best player versus the worst player are people going off at minus 500 in the first rounds or is it kind of like golf where things are closer to a pick in like one-on-one matches no i mean players are going off you know i mean the best player in the world at the moment is a guy called judd trump um who regularly goes off like minus 1600 minus minus 2000 um in the first in the first round, if he's playing some sort of you know some sort of um, dud, um, but yeah, so there's, there's quite a discrepancy between the the good players and the bad players. Um, but uh, yeah, um, yeah. I, I mean, once it gets once you get down to the last sixteen, then you know, I mean, the, the top guys are still going off minus three hundred against you know other top sixteen players. Um, Sorry, other tops, you know, say 16 to 32 players. Um, but um, the games are a lot more competitive there. Um, 
um, just the way the way that snooker works is that um, you know the kind of nature of the game is that once you get sort of top guy versus top guy, then there's kind of very it, it's you know there's very little um, that can there's very little to separate them, um, and um, that th- those games are pretty much nearly always fifty fifty, I would say, or, or close to. You, you will get you know if a, if a guy's played particularly well during the tournament, then you will get. Um, you know, they will go off a bit of a favourite, but um, not nothing too heavy. So what makes the guys who are really good better than the average guys, I guess? Is there a way to yeah. distill it neatly, or is it kind of unexplainable? They're just better. No, I mean, um, there's a couple of things. So, I mean, the, the first the first thing is that they just, they just win more frames, right? I mean, the, the best way to... The most predictive... One of the most predictive um, things in snooker is... How many frames, you know, how many frames a, a player has won previously, you know, as a as a ratio of their total frames played, and then obviously adjusted for opponent. So, um, you know, if if Judd Trump is playing Ronnie O'Sullivan, who's another really good player, um, versus if he's playing someone like Alan Taylor, who is not a good player, um, then you know you, you have to obviously have to adjust for that. Um, so that that's um. That's one thing, but then you can also look at because uh, the way that snooker works is that you have to pop. There's, there's 15 reds on the table and there's six colours, and you have to pop red colour, red colour, red colour, um, and that's how you make a break. Um, and the best players are, are consistently making those breaks quite often, and then you know they're making big breaks, so um, regularly making breaks of 50 plus or you know centuries, which is um, the break of 100 or more. Um, maximum breaks 147. Um, you, you get a few of those a season, but they're pretty rare. Um, so yeah, the the two main predictors really are you know number of frames won as a percentage adjusted for opponent, and then um, their break building statistics and how often they're making big breaks. And um, yeah, when you're growing up, are there like kids at your school who are really good at snooker? Like, is that a popular game for people to play and making it to the tour is like, Oh yeah, this guy made it. Or like, what does the progression for a top level snooker player look like? Um, I mean, not really these days. I mean, back in the eighties, I mean, snooker was huge. I mean, probably, I mean, I don't, I haven't got the stats to hand, but it must've been like the third or fourth biggest sport in the, in the UK. And then, you know, other things came along and the game was mismanaged by, various people who are kind of just in it for themselves whatever um and, you know come the tooth come the early to mid 2000s no one really cared at all about snooker like people would watch the you know the big tournaments like the world championship maybe the masters but outside of that it was a complete irrelevance you know you could and even snooker's growing again now but even now you could walk past you know m- most people would Say that I don't know the number thirty in the world. Someone like um, it's probably a bit harsh. It's probably a bit higher than that. But um, say someone like Joe Perry, who's you know really good snooker player, won won a couple of events. Um, you know made a living for twenty odd years at it. But he could walk down the street and pretty much no one would know who he is, which is kind of harsh, really. But um, yeah, it's not a, not a big sport at all. But it used to be, and um, it is growing a little bit. But um, yeah, it's not really, it's a pretty niche sport, I would say. Um, and there's certainly no, you know, when people are growing up, there's certainly no um, sort of 
wide scale ambition to be a snooker player. You'll get the odd, the odd guy who wants to do it. But um, yeah, most people are focused on being, you know, soccer players or whatever, or um, rugby players, etc. Cricketers. Um, no one really grows up thinking, oh, I'm going to be a snooker player. Um, doesn't really happen. What about players? Let's say like a starter on a bad Premier League team. If he walks down the street. Do people know him? Like, how much more popular is football? Oh, I kind of feel like a lot of sports, people wouldn't know the 30th best player walking down the street. Like, even, well, NBA players, you out yourself because you're so huge. But, like, tennis, golf, uh, MLB, I feel like if a lot of those guys walk down the street in America, people wouldn't know who they are. Unless they were, like, a superstar, you know? Yeah, I mean, probably, like, an, in, an infinite amount, I would say. Um yeah, I, I, loads of people would know who. Um, no, I actually don't know that many soccer players, believe it or not. But um, that's just because I'm a weirdo. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, loads of people would know who. Um, you know, like a starter for um, a Premier League team. Um, and yeah, um, pretty, especially in, in that in their in their hometown, right? Um, or the town that they play for. Not most players are, um, are born overseas now, but. Um, yeah, most most people in the town would kind of kind of know who that that guy is. Whereas, um, you know, if um, like I say, if Joe Perry walked down the street, then even though he's you know twenty fifth best player in the world, no one would really kind of know who he is. Yeah, makes sense. I guess if no one's watching Snooker, um, yeah, yeah that's I mean, kind of people watch. But, um, you know, it's just kind of like a passing thing. It's like, oh, well, um, you know, got nothing else to do. Put this on for a bit. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he's won. Turn it off. Find something else. No, no one actually kind of cares about what's going To be fair, I, I mean, I don't really. I just see it as a – I do like snooker, obviously. But, um, you know, the, the, ultimately the main thing is that it's kind of a sport in which – you know, I kind of bet on it to try and win some money. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, I don't, I don't lose sleep at night thinking about whether you know, <laughs> Joe Perry is um, <laughs> getting the recognition he deserves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, what are the purses like in those events? Like, if Joe Perry takes down the the event this week, is he? Is it like fifty thousand dollars? A million dollars? What does it look like? I'm I'm thinking no, it kind of sounds like bowling in America, where I think some yeah. of those guys make some money and like they're up there and are good bowlers, but also, you know, nobody watches bowling unless it's like what you described. Oh, yeah, this is on whatever. Yeah, I mean, kind of the you know, kind of the former. I think bowling is is probably a good um, comparison, actually. You know, I mean, um, we can get the get the um the ranking list up this this year on so this is a two year ranking list and um thirty eight of the players have, have won more than more than a hundred thousand pounds over two years. So Oh okay, so um, not much. It's pretty no pretty thin. And the, yeah, and it it's you know it's ten it tends to be like the, the top kind of ten guys that are winning consistently. Um and they're earning good money. Um but um, yeah, I mean, the, so the best player in the world at the moment, Judd Trump, has earned 1.32 million um, in the last two years, which is pretty good. But like, he's miles clear of anyone else. And you know, for being the best player in the world, it's it's not that great, you know. But um, right. 
Yeah, um, so it's it's more like bowling, I would say. Um, I mean, it, the World Championship is is half a million to the winner, so that's pretty good. Um, but week in, week out, you know, the events are you know fifty thousand, seventy five thousand sterling. This is you know hundred thousand if it's hundred thousand if it's a reasonably big tournament, and then a couple of other ones you get you know you get two hundred thousand for winning um, the Masters and the UK Championship, which is pretty big tournament, but um, most of the purses are towards kind of fifty to hundred thousand for winning, and, and also the, you know, the second place might only get twenty, so it drops off pretty quickly. Um, the, you know, the, the winning purse tends to be kind of um, tends to be kind of a headline um, amount rather than trying to spread it equally. You know, whereas yeah. golf, I think, is more. Um, I think the golf the drop off from first to second it's pretty big but as a percentage it's not in the same league as a snooker um cuz i think what would a pga tour winner get like 1.5 million for winning dollars and then yeah, the second might get like it's pretty good 800 or something yeah there's probably like 150 guys or maybe a, yeah probably 150 guys in the world who are making more than a million dollars a year not bad yeah, I mean that's you know it's pretty good, isn't it? Really. Um, yeah. Plus, I don't know what the I don't know what the sponsorships are like. I think that's mostly kind of free stuff, which is nice, and you get to fly net jets and stuff. But if that's any money on top of that, like you know, Tyrrell Hatton's getting Odomar's watches. I think it's kind of like there's some nice benefits you can get in the sponsorships, even if you're not Phil Mickelson getting explicitly paid like you know millions, yeah, sure. ten million dollars by whatever the green briar or something or you know how do the purses work is it do um so say like I think it, the honda for example are honda put, putting most of that money in or is it tv money or i'm not really sure how that works i don't know how it works either i think that the pga tour puts up the money um but yeah the pga tour must be making the money from somewhere and i can't sure. imagine that the ticket sales are all of that, although they could be a lot. I think that the sponsor is usually responsible for like putting a lot of money into some charity associated with it, or maybe paying for the expenses of the tournament at the course, you know, like groundskeepers and setting up the whatever um, stands for people to sit in. But yeah. I don't really know how it, how it is. Um, yeah. It's, it's kind of a lot of money. And then, the PJ Tour has a program where they like automatically deduct a percentage from your winnings and invest it in like a player's retirement fund, um, which I think has like favorable terms. It's like I don't know if like the PJ Tour is literally matching like an employer might do, but it's something like that where not only are you getting paid a lot, but you know when JT wins the FedEx Cup for ten million, five million goes into his account, which is you know going to be 18 million in 10 years or whatever and then he can withdraw that when he's 50 or something i don't know it's they definitely are i think that there's a lot of money going around the pga tour and it's only a few people are collecting it you know yes yeah but it's interesting to know where it's coming from i mean yeah, i mean but then if it was ticket sponsors then surely they'd be kind of be screwed the last 12 months because you know haven't haven't sold me tickets um yeah, I mean, so, yeah. I think that the I think the way it it works is that Honda signs an X year contract with the PGA Tour where they pay oh, the PGA okay. Tour money, and then they 
I assume take on responsibilities, but also are able to put their commercials um, during the broadcast and are able to have it say Honda in the lake or whatever. But I, yeah. I believe that the PGA Tour is being paid up front um, in a multi-year deal that varies with how valuable the tournament is. So I think well, Greenbrier yeah. pays the PGA Tour probably like, you know, $10 million a year or some large amount of money. And then Greenbrier maybe gets to take all the ticket receipts or something <laughs> like that. You know what I mean? But it would be yeah. interesting to know how that is mechanically happening. Yeah, need to get um, need to get some, you know, one of the PGA Tour commercials guys on. That should be a, a yeah. you know, the business we've chosen action, I think. <laughs> Try and get one of those on. That could be tough. I wonder if anyone even knows. Or I, I mean, I've seen various like conspiracy theory type articles about how the P, you know the PJ Tour is a charity, um, so they like don't have to pay taxes on any of their winnings, and right. they keep that status by partnering with a lot of charities and donating a lot of the money. But you'll sometimes like see investigations, you know, into the nefarious actions of them. I don't. I, this, Kind of sound, they're written by clowns and it sounds clownish, but there might be some truth to it. And the PGA Tour is actually a charity, you know? So, um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think it might be kind of mysterious and not, they don't want the public, the public isn't ready for it. Right. Yeah. 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 So when you're betting on golf, you're doing DFS as well as the regular stuff? Um, not so much now, but, um, I've, yeah, I've, I've dabbled, um, let's put it like that. Yeah. Um, so I know, you know, I know a fair bit about golf DFS. And why not anymore? Just like, it's harder to beat now or rake is too big or what, what changed? Um, I mean, it's just, you know, small, smaller games are beatable and then you move up and then you have to play like five and, you know. Empire Maker Two, etc., and then it's like, well, you know, are, are you first of all, are you going to really beat these guys? Probably not. Um, and then there's just there's just not, you know, I, personally, I just don't think the fish kind of exists. And the way the golf DFS is set up as well is that it's kind of hard to differentiate yourself between, you know, be, between players because. A lot of the, you know, some of the golfers are kind of obvious and not everyone's picking them, but, um, you know, the the ownership tends to match um, the expected value of each player, I would say, um, pretty closely. So, you know, better value players get higher owned, lower value players get lower owned. Um, and then, you you know, the next question is you, you have to ask yourself is where's the edge um, and you know, at the higher stakes, there doesn't tend to be one. Um, I think lower stakes is probably beatable. And, uh, you know, I think there's people grinding um, lower stakes pretty well. Um, but um, for me, I'd rather concentrate on sort of fixed odds betting and, and stuff like that at the moment anyway. Um, that might change. But, um, yeah, at the moment, fixed odds betting's um much better for the, the way that I'm set up. What is the effective rake on those high stakes DraftKings contest is it similar to minus one ten or is it more or less? Uh, yeah, I think it's yeah, probably but maybe one minus one oh eight I think or something like that. Um, yeah, so um, you know, 
and then you, you're laying minus one ten against someone like Empire Maker or whatever. It's not pretty, you know. It's not a very attractive proposition, really. Um, Are his far. teams his teams seem good? I feel like his persona, which he's probably trying to craft, is that his teams aren't good, um, but his teams are pretty solid. Yeah, there's just not, you know, I think to be laying minus one ten against someone, you they've got to be making not dumb mistakes, but I think you you've got you have to see a, like an obvious weakness. Um, and that there's just no obvious weakness really in, in his teams, you know. It's, um, oh, of course, it's gonna, he's going to pick a few players that um, you're not going to agree with occasionally, but um, you know, may as well just bet against those in a matchup, right? Rather than um, rolling the dice and then kind of hoping that you're right and he's wrong and whatever. Um, so yeah, and of course. Um, if you're betting fixed odds, then you get to pick and choose when you, you know, which kind of players you bet against, um, rather than hoping that he's drafted a couple of players that you don't like, etc. Um, so um, yeah, it's not not too attractive really um, to do that. Yeah, makes sense. Um, okay, let's go to a Twitter question here. Um, Rick asks, "Is putting doesn't matter? The running backs don't matter of golf." Um, what do you think about that? Um, yeah, it seems reasonable. Um, I think putting does matter actually, um, but kind of, um, which isn't a very good answer. Um, no, I, I think I think bad putters, you know, your, your Keegans, your kind of Grillos, for example, although they they can run hot, I think you know, essentially they're going they're going to be in for minus minus strokes um putting right every round um there's no way that those guys are going to get good overnight um as putters um and i think to just say oh well you know putting's all luck let's just regress it all back to zero or you know really aggressively back to zero i think that's a mistake um because those guys are just for whatever reason they're bad putters um and then but then i think once you get time they'd like to the you know the, the mid-range putters so um Maybe, um, maybe kind of you, you know, Sebastian Munoz is um, who can get quite streaky with the putter, um, but then can also have some pretty bad putting rounds. I think those guys, I'm much more inclined to forgive those for a, a bad putting round. You know what I mean? Because because at the same time they can they can get just as hot, the you know, in the next round. Um, whereas you, you Keegan's, you, you Grillos, um, Corey Connors is probably. A, Another example who doesn't get hot very often. I think I think you're putting. I think it's instead of looking at an average. I think you. I think the variance is more interesting, right? Um, so you kind of want, especially if you're betting outrights, you kind of want the guys that can maybe get hot more often than not. Um, and with the you know, as I say, with the Keegans etc., you don't tend to get that. Um, Lucas Glover's another one who doesn't really. You know, it's pretty. Um, doesn't have many positive rounds um, putting. Um, so yeah, I think putting is, is. I think there's more value in looking at the variance really rather than um, kind of the um, they're in for if that makes sense. Yeah, Glover's really amazing. He had a, I think he had a putt. It wasn't. It was to shoot like 59 or shoot 60 or on the way to shooting. Maybe it was on 17 and he was like 10 under. And it was from like, you know, 19 inches and they showed the down the line footage 
And on the way back, his putter is like the heel of it is to the right of the ball. Like he's taken it out dead outside. So you can yep. see the ball. And then on the way through, he makes contact on like the very outside edge, the toe of the putter and the ball, like, you know, lipped in from 19 inches. <laughs> There's a lot of guys like that who is very easy to see. Like, yeah, yeah. this guy is not going to find it. Grillo, yeah. what's so weird about him is he seems solid. You know, he, he doesn't seem bad at anything, but he just is. It's yes, like, yeah. I keep, he shouldn't be as bad as he is, but for whatever reason he is. I, I don't know why he's so bad, but he, he really is. It's kind of amazing. Yeah, I kind of agree with that. Um, you know, I mean, as you say, you, your Glovers and Keegan Bradley's another one. I mean, you, you kind of have to close your eyes right when they're putting and you you bet on them. I mean, it's great if you bet against them. I could watch it all day, you know what I mean? You just keep showing <laughs> their puts. Um, but uh, if you if you bet on them, which is kind of normally the, the case, because, um, yeah, for whatever reason, those players tend to you know, tend to show value more often than not. Um, not, not always, but just the way things are. Um, yeah. You kind of have to close your eyes, right? Cause it's just absolutely horrible watching them. Um, and you can, as you can, as I can say, there's no, there's no way that they're really ever realistically going, going to be above average putters. Although you, maybe you would have said that again about Webb Simpson as well, actually. Um, and he's really turned it around, hasn't he? I mean, um, he's actually an above average putter now, which is, you know, because he was one of the um, he was one of the, the the guys with the the long you know the um, what do they call it the is it yeah the, the long handle? putter the the broom handle the anchored putter yeah yeah Simpson was uh, he was good before with that and then he was bad for two years while he was transitioning and now he's good again yes. um, which seems very weird but Bryson's kind of the same way I think it's um, there's a difference between a recreational guy who's doing something like that. Versus if a pro is actually spending like, you know, 10 hours every week um, hitting putts, then it might just be like, you know, we've got this muscle memory down and the stroke is very similar each time and everything's locked and it looks ugly, but I'm, I'm practicing 10 hours every week and I'm never going to miss that 10. Um, So you can just be kind of solid at it, especially with the green books. Like those green books really help a lot. Um, I mean, they're not perfect, obviously, but it just can make a bad green reader a lot better. And I don't know if Simpson was. I mean, those guys have been good for so long that they're probably solid at reading greens. Um, But that's another thing kind of helping bad putters. It's kind of one of my only old man golf positions is I don't really like the green books and the long putters and those sorts of things. Like, yeah, they're only used by people kind of who suck at it. but it just depresses the ver- the variance between like the really good and really bad people, I feel like. Sure. And it'd be one thing if the golf courses tried to fight back, if there were more PGA Tour courses like San Antonio last week or that are trying to have really tricky greens, then it'd be no big deal. But it seems like most of the events now are very, like the greens run very nice, but not fast and the pins aren't crazy, and the slopes are something. Like maybe you know, 10 or 15% of the weeks on tour, the greens are nasty. But other than that, they seem kind of like easy. You know, it's, it's, it'd be nice if that putting skill was a bit more valuable than it is because it's so easy for it now to be like, oh, yeah, putting doesn't matter. And a lot of it doesn't matter, you know. Yeah, 
I mean, in general, I don't. In general, in, in kind of all sports, I don't like um, initiatives that um, bring the you know reduce the variance, bring the um, bring the competitors together. Um, generally, I, I kind of like um, I, I like having rules in place that um, allow a player to, um, to you know to, to show what they can do. Um, Green's books probably fall under that um, category in that they. As you say, they they compress the abilities of of all the players regard with regards to putting. Um, I mean, the other problem with um, trying to assess putting is that a lot of it is kind of well at a at a round to round level. A lot of it is kind of correlated with around the green. Um, so, for example, say someone's short sided and they chip the ball and they've got no no real way of stopping it and it runs ten foot past. Um, you know, it's in all, all things considered, it's a pretty good chip. There was, you know, they were pretty dead before they hit it. Um, I, I, I feel like, and there's there's no real way to get good data on this. I think um, there probably are some people who do have good data, but I don't. Um, it feels like that that ten footer coming back is like way more likely to be made than someone who's put a wedge to ten foot and then has to make the putt for birdie. Does that make sense? So like ha- yeah. having read, having seen the line and having seen like you know the, the speed in, in which um the balls come off after the chip seems like a huge advantage but then sh- the the strokes gain data will just see those as two 10 foot puts um and i think that's i think that round to round that creates quite a bit of noise um and it's really really difficult to try and work out you, you know trying to to separate that that noise um i think that's really tough um and yeah as i say it, it creates quite a bit of quite a bit of disparity i think yeah, it's very yeah, it's very easy to get short guys who are good at golf, you know, and long guys who are bad. And a lot of the stats can under or overrate like the guy's course management, to use a kind of a bad announcer term. Where yes. if you like smartly plot your way around the course, it might seem like, oh man, this guy plays well every round. But it's just because the stats are measured so imperfectly that it does seem like it but really if strokes gains was just better and better contextualized each shot it would show that this guy just is better he's not just you know he's kind of cheating the measurement system not the game of golf cheating the measurement system which is why spieth kind of drives me crazy because i feel like that gets attributed to him you know like oh well he's just kind of doing that but it's not true you know he plays kind of i would say not good golf and doesn't actually outperform his ratings you know he just kind of legitimately luckily does <laughs> yeah I, I tend to agree actually um but then even you know even playing a little bit in in real life like you, you you'll play with people who i would say i would call um quote unquote better scorers than other players d- d- despite having like kind of the same ball striking ability does that make sense you know there's some even at a recreational kind of golf level some people tend to just score better than others just because they you know they're tidier at certain shots which kind of matter yeah totally in golf. i think the number one thing is like if you draw you know a 20 yard circle around the pin that's all of the shots missed the green or 25 yards or something those shots, yeah. even if they're all from the rough 25 yards away, 
could be draft. I mean, they could be like half a shot or even more, maybe 0.8 shots different from each other. And yeah. you can get, especially when you're really good, like these guys are, the margin which you get rewarded or penalized for shots is so different course to course. Yeah. Or if a guy's running hot, he could just like be hitting shots really close. And then when you get to the wrong course that penalizes shots that are four yards left, you're now like going to significantly underperform your rating because you're going to hit a lot of shots that are close, but it's like, well, yeah, that's just the course. You have to be more precise and you're being too aggressive with these shots. Yep. Yeah. I, th- I feel like, yeah, you know, th- I feel like there's certain courses on the PGA tour that, um, that do reward, um, you know, more, um, well, slightly less aggressive um, shot selection. I think Muirfield Village, for one, is probably one where, you know, and kind of any shot on the green is probably a good one. Um, whereas there's other tour court, you know, other tour stops where, um, you know, it kind of pays to be aggressive, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. On the European tour, it's like, it doesn't matter where you hit it. You know, the rough is <laughs> a half inch thick everywhere and there's nothing on the course. They're just muni after muni, essentially, where Muirfield Village is, yeah, the greens are lightning, hilly, the rough is impossibly thick. If you miss the green, you're totally fucked. Yep. And yeah, some European courses are like that, where you can be, but a lot of them are like, yeah, they just look like a random course. How do they pick those European tour courses? I mean, we kind of tried to guess how the PGA does it earlier with the sponsors, but how are the courses picked on the European tour? Because some of them are, I mean, just really bad. Like they're just bad golf courses, you know? Yeah, I, I don't know. I think so. I think logistics is one thing, right? Because they're, I'm assuming they're lugging around like a load of equipment from country to country, week in, week out. And you can't have, you know, there, there might be a really good golf course on a coast somewhere, but if it's gonna, if it's like five hours from the nearest airport, then that's, you know, if you've got, if you've got to leave the, um, if you have to leave the, 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 the tournament that's just gone on the Sunday and then get to the next tournament by the Monday, you haven't, you know, you haven't got five hours to travel to some gorgeous kind of, you know, resort course that's on the coast and everyone raves about. Um, I'm, that's just guessing. Maybe I've got that wrong, but um, yeah, it feels like kind of logistics plays a big part. Um, I don't know whether sponsors, etc., are throwing money at courses to host might be happening. Um, don't know about that though um i've not heard of anything but would make sense um and then I, I think maybe just kind of history you know like um historically someone might you know a player or a couple of players might have had a tie with the course and it's like oh why don't you hold an event here and then that event has gone you know just year to year and it's kind of just kept happening you know because a lot of the courses they've played on since like 1990 and stuff um and maybe they would move if um if they want, you know, if they had a an excuse to, but um, it might just be too easy to, to stay at the, at the same course. Um, but the truth, truthful answer is I don't know. Um, yeah. I know, for example, Wentworth um, that holds the BMW, which is kind of like the flagship event on the Euro. Um, that's, I think that's a history thing. Um, that's held it for like maybe 40 years or something daft like that. Um so I think that's a history thing. And to be fair, that is a legitimately like elite course, you know, um, where you, you do actually get penalised for bad shots and um, the winning score isn't like a million under par every year and 
you know, good golfers can actually shoot like a 74 or something. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I wonder if in Europe it's just harder to guarantee fans being at an event. Um, Quite possibly, yeah. So they have to, once they have something that works, they just don't leave because it's not going to get better than it is. Um, yeah. And maybe like um, maybe why. TV as well, you know, trying to get TV um, cameras etc. to to events. They might have a say. They might have more of a say than what they do in the US because you know pretty much everywhere is gettable with enough time. Um, yeah. Whereas uh, as I say, traveling Europe, you know, country to country, and, you know, the I mean, at Kenya last week, a couple of weeks ago, apparently the the TV cameras couldn't get in or something. I mean. <laughs> they only managed to show the, the Sunday because of I don't know what happened. That apparently the um, I, I know they couldn't get in, but um, some of the equipment got held up at the border or something. Some absolutely like farcical <laughs> thing that would never ever happen in the US. Yeah. Um, so yeah, stuff like that is probably like a legitimate consideration as to where a hold as to where to hold an event. Whereas in the in the US, it's you know who's going to pay the most money and and um, who's you know. Which which course is going to get the biggest names? I suppose. Yeah, when people are just watching golf in like a pub over there, are they watching the European Tour at the normal time? Are they waiting for the PGA at night? Like, what of the people who are following golf at the casual level and at the more like watching most tournaments level? What's the breakdown of how they follow the two tours? Are they more like nationalistic of oh, I watch the European Tour because I live in Europe? or the PGA tour is the better tour or whatever event has the better event. Uh, how do most people yeah, follow it's that? Good, it's a good question, actually. Um, I mean, so betting turnover wise, the PGA tour gets, um, depending on the event probably gets, I would say anywhere from double to three times the amount of turnover as the, uh, on the, as it would on the, um, as it would compare to the European event. Right. So, um, you know, the, the betting, um, turnover is, is significantly weighted in, in favour of the, the PGA. Um, but I, I do think it it depends on which PGA Tour players are playing in that event. Um, you know, so if you get your, your Dustin Johnsons, Thomas, etc. Um, Rory is obviously um, quite a big um, attraction. Um, even Tyrrell Hatton these days is, you know, gets quite a lot of attention. Uh, Justin really? Rose in the past. Not. Damn. Yeah, because he's quite funny, isn't he? You know, he... He's always good for a sound bite, and um, yeah, he's perceived to be a character, I think. Whereas um, I just think he's a bit of a tit, but yeah, whatever. Yeah, he um, seems like a prick. Yeah, yeah he, I mean, he basically is, I think. Um, you know, hopefully he doesn't listen to this and sue me, but um, yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I've got the evidence to prove it. The guy's pretty, <laughs> pretty fucking annoying at all times, constantly. Yeah. Like, yeah, he just. The guys who, it never ceases to amaze me. People who play golf and hit, you know, 200 shots every day and, you know, 100 on a golf course every day and they miss a 12-foot putt, which they've hit 500 of in the last three months. And, you know, 200 of them went in, or way less than, a, a lot of them missed and they'll be on tour and they'll miss one. And it's just like, They've never seen it before. Like, what on earth is this? It's like, well, what do you mean? You see these five times a day. They just, they miss some percentage of the time. You you don't make them all. Yeah, it's, uh, whether it's because there's money or points or whatever on the line and 
that that you know increases the um the stress i don't know but it's very strange behavior i mean you'd think by now they'd have a decent grasp on kind of the variance involved in those sort of shots and yet as you say every time they miss one it seems that they absolutely lose their minds over something that should be kind of routine um right yeah it's very That's, strange it's nice to see like xander who just you know misses it and taps in it's like okay on to the next or victor hovland makes it misses it on to the next shot it's and DJ is the same way. It seems because he, nothing's really going on up there, but it's kind of nice to see that, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I do wonder if that's the case, or whether he kind of, whether he's, you know, kind of psyching himself up. Um, although actually, he's interview. He's he's pretty much the same in interviews, right? You know, he's kind of like a laid back, yeah, character. Um, whereas Bryson and JT, obviously, we had the incident a couple of months ago. Um, <laughs> and um yeah and um and, and ram will obviously kind of lose their shit pretty regularly um yeah for missing the quite a you know just a routine sort of thing happening in, in their sport um but um regarding whether people watch the pgl euro more i think pga is is definitely more popular um but you do kind of get like a hardcore um you know, group of people that that will watch the Euro um, quite avidly, and um, you know, some of the players have got like a cult following. Um, trying to think of some off the top of my head, um, it may be um, it might come under that character that category. Let's have a look. Uh, this is terrible content. I'm, I'm aware. Um, <laughs> That's okay. Uh, yeah, I can't think of any, but you know, some of the um, some of the players who haven't won for a while. I mean, um, even players, someone like David Drysdale, who I think he's played like 520 events and has never won on the European <laughs> tour, which is uh, mind blowing. Like he's got a bit of a a bit of a cult following, um, and you got it's like kind of blows my mind that um, like even the barstool people will be like tweeting about David Drysdale, and you're like, what, what even is this? Like how? How have we got to this situation where, like, yeah, some some um, random Robert, guy from Barstool is Robert Rock too, yeah. probably right. I feel like he yeah, was yeah. following over there. Yeah, yeah, because of um, because of the no cap. Robert Rock um, lives pretty close to me actually, um, or used to, or certainly grew grew up pretty close. Um, probably moved on to better things now, maybe. Um, but yeah, Robert Rock's a bit of a legend because of the um, the no cap and stuff. Um, he seems like a really kind of like down to earth guy as well, you know. There's kind of no bullshit with him. He just sort of gets on with it. Um, yeah, so he's he's probably a bit of a cult following as well. Um, Thomas Peters because of the way he snaps clubs and stuff like that, and just he's another one that kind of totally loses his mind. Although he's calmed down a bit um, since um, you know maybe since a couple of years ago. Um, so yeah, you, you tend to get quite a few. Um, players with cult followings on the on the Euro for whatever reason. Um, and that makes it quite attractive to watch, I think, for some people. Interesting. It's tough here because it's usually just not on TV or you've got to find some weird stream at some weird hour. It's kind of hard to follow it. Um, but if it was on, you know, at some sports bar at 2 o'clock or whatever, it seems like it'd be pretty easy to follow over there, that it might be nice to follow it yeah. too, that it's like people, you know, there's going to be some guy in the top 10 probably from or in the top 20 who's like from near where you're from you know kind of what you're saying yeah. 
you can yeah, sure. easier to, uh, you know, most of the guys on the PGA tour, it's like, Oh yeah, this guy was just like amazing at five and like went to this Academy and has been taking lessons from, you know, Butch Harmon since he was 12 and like, he's still really good. <laughs> Not as many. Well, you've yeah. got, like, Andy Sullivan, who like used to work in Asda, for example, which is supermarket. Um, you know, so um, yeah, it's quite, quite the difference. Um, and, and then works his way up into um, a European tour uh, star, should we say? Yeah, he could be a star. Count, count him as a star. Yeah, I mean, he's pretty, pretty solid. Won last year, didn't he? Um, didn't he? Didn't he make the Ryder Cup as well? I, I seem to remember. Oh wow! One of the Ryder Cup teams. Yeah, I'm sure he made it at one point. Maybe not the most recent one. Although, actually, I guess if it was if it was uh, three years ago, he probably did at uh, Le Golf yeah, National. Yeah, not sure. Yeah. Let's see what else we got here on the list. Um, we have a question. Do you subjectively adjust any of your fares? If yes, why haven't you quantified? I think this is um, kind of a, it's kind of a weird question because it kind of presupposes that like everything is quantifiable in a good way which is just not true especially in a sport like golf uh, where there aren't that many data points it's incredibly random each of the data points and getting what you want out of it is not easy and is sometimes not possible yep so i feel like subjectively adjusting your fares is kind of necessary or subjectively contextualizing um, the numbers that are going into your affairs. Um, it's kind of a key more in golf than in any other sport, especially because they play golf. Like every shot is hit under different conditions, whether it's temperature, wind, location, what the goal of the shot is, whether it's curving one way or the other, what type of grass it's being hit out of. It's not as similar as, you know, football or basketball or hockey where like all of the things are taking place in a very regular um, court, you know, the court changes a lot in golf. Yeah. I, I basically agree with all of that. Um, yeah. I think that the reason that you can't quantify some of the stuff is just because the data isn't there. Or if, if the data is there, it's, it's either a nightmare to, um, to you know, to, to clean up and get actually, because it's it's okay having data, but if you can't clean it properly, and then you know you end up with data set that is you know that doesn't provide any predictive signal, then kind of what's the point, right? You have to there has to be some you have to get some value out of it, um, and then you know even if you can do that, it's like well you know this might affect this this data set which I've you know really worked hard to get, and it takes me you know an hour every week to clean and go in and pick bits out and whatever. And like, it changes a player's skill level by, by like 0.02 shots. It's like, well, you know, could have spent that time on something way more productive. Um, so I think that's the reason that some of the, you know, even if there are stuff, even if there are things that you adjust for, you know, that you might see on TV or whatever, or, you know, you might have a, not a feeling about something, but, um, you know, you, your gut might tell you that um, so-and-so has underperformed or overperformed in a certain spot or metric. Um, actually, you know, turning that subjective adjustment into an actual quantifiable action 
can really be a, quite a lot of work and it's quite difficult to um it can be quite difficult to um to justify spending the time on it um as you say especially with golf where there's kind of loads of holes missing in the data and it's quite difficult to you know you, you just can't get that data yeah yeah although i mean golf is going especially on the pga tour they're getting more and more every day where it seems like in the future you might have almost everything you need or at least most of the stuff you need on every shot um yeah, the amount of possibly. stuff that's out there is pretty incredible but even still it's it's not measured perfectly it's there's some guy out there with a laser who's like pointing at it and like there could be a tree in the sight line or there could not be, or in the backswing, like there's still a lot of things that are left out of the data and like where, where is, how short-sighted is the pin and like, what are the easy misses? Are those into bad spots or into good spots? Um, You can kind of go down the rabbit hole forever even with what they already have and assuming that it'll get a lot more granular in the future. Um, you're always going to be missing a lot of things. Yeah. I mean, even look, even taking the volunteer thing, right. I mean, what, where, where's their, um, where's their reward for getting it absolutely spot on? You know, there simply isn't one. So that has to be taken with a pinch of salt, you know, especially if the balls ended up in a, you know, a bit of a tricky situation and, I can't locate it properly or whatever, or it's, as you say, stuck behind a tree or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But then I think also with um, subjective adjustments, I mean, this week we've got the Masters, right? And um, now, now I was played in November last year and the course, apparently, according to every kind of pro golfer, you know, every golfer that was in the event and even what you saw with your eyes played totally different to what, what it will this week, right? I think that's pretty much a given. So if you're using course history or, or something like that in your model, you can't, it, it would be a big mistake, I think, to, um, to use that event as, as the, you know, the same weighting as, as the um, 2019 April version or 2018, et cetera, et cetera. Does that make sense? So, you know, even kind of random one-off stuff like that, you have to, there's no way of really quantifying it and you have to make some sort of subjective adjustment. Um, and I think ultimately that's why kind of, I think if you're good at making those adjustments, you've kind of got an edge for life because no one's really going to pick up on it. Um, unless that data, unless a data set becomes available whereby someone can actually do that quant work, you've kind of, I think you, you know, you pretty much, I'm not saying you've got a, a facility to print money because you might be lacking in other areas or you know you might not be very good at getting bets down but um i think you have i think you've got an advantage over the market in that in that area for quite a long time yeah i kind of agree that you can i feel like the spots i like when i was talking with subtle alterity i said how you don't want to have the same spots over and over again because it means your model's wrong but in golf it's such a smaller market that i feel like i do get into a lot of similar spots a lot but i think that they're just edge you know i'm just exploiting the market or you know using my knowledge to make some money um but it is hard like if things got perfectly categorized like reading that data golf is jordan spieth back thing you know with that sort of data you're getting closer to being able to not need adjustments and you kind of have a lot more things you know yeah i think 
I think we, the golf market specifically, this is going a bit off topic, but whatever, probably of interest to a few people. Um, I think with the golf market specifically, I think those edges can repeat because of the, I think it's so unique how the kind of the lines are originated and uh, I think the trading life cycle is pretty, you know, is, is pretty um, unique. You've, you've basically got a few, at open, you've got a few people who are kind of opening those lines, right? And, you know, that. um there's not really there's no real kind of asian market or anything else to copy it's just it seems like some you know a few random guys are throwing some stuff up and see what happens um and then you on top of that you've only really got a few a few people you know your, your rufuses your your fathers etc who can kind of influence the market off those lines um and so i, I think unless unless though unless those people's models are perfect, which they could be, but you know, as good as they are, it seems fairly unlikely that they're going to be absolutely perfect every time. Then it does seem conceivable that you you could actually find a, a kind of a niche whereby you're you're you know you're ahead of them on a certain couple of things. Whereas NFL, for example, where you've got maybe you know, you've you've got hundreds of different approaches that are, that are betting into the lines, right? So you've got loads of you you'll have your big syndicates, and you've got you know your smaller groups of two or three, and you you know your people who are giving it a go on their own. Um, and ultimately, all, all of those will have a slightly different approach, right? They're all betting into the into the line. Um, and I think that kind of um, combination of methods means that if you, uh, I think it's you know just looking at the numbers side, I think it's increasingly unlikely that you're likely to have a method that will kind of trump all of them. Does that make sense? So, you know, with, with golf, there's, there's, because there's fewer methods being bet into the market, it seems more conceivable that you could actually have something, you know, something niche that might um, provide value in certain spots. Yeah, I think with golf too, it's like if, if you're betting outrights or even the matchups, it's, they're very, very, very random. You know, you could very easy to deviate from your edge by a lot over pretty big samples um so even if someone is doing something good or bad it's going to be really hard for them to know how good or bad it is um yeah until they have a lot of data and even after you do it's still really hard to know if it's if it's good or bad and then with some of the guys on tour as like this season's been a bit weirder feels like there's been more injuries. Um, there's only been a couple COVID withdrawals. I thought there would be more. Um, but there's some guys who will kind of fall off a cliff and other guys who will just all of a sudden be really good. Um, and when Bookmaker lists every player in a matchup, like having an approach for all those guys and knowing all the info about those guys is basically impossible. And it's also yeah. unknowable. So it might get down to it where you show edges on guys that are like, you might never be comfortable betting, you know, if there's 20 yeah. guys in the field that you would never want to bet, but the prices are so ridiculous that you have to, you still are like, maybe you're wrong on those, you know, that maybe yes. that guy is totally dead and he actually is terrible and his shoulders broken. You know, you're just not going to know any of that stuff. Even this week with he's Brooks, wrong. it's like, there was a report that his, you know, he's going to be out for the rest of the year with a broken leg or something. And now he's like, Oh Yeah all good like 181 ball speed on the range like 
see you Thursday. <laughs> so <laughs> I still, I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if he shot like 78 withdraw, but he might win too. You know, it's your, the info you're going off of is it's not even, it's like not even 1% of the way to real info, you know? Yeah. Agreed. But I mean, and then you've even got, you've got players like Stenson who, I mean, God knows what's happening there. I mean, there's various rumors. Um, I, I don't, I mean, I started a rumor that he's fixing matches. I don't know what that guy's deal is, but he won the, he won the open championship a few years ago and was semi recently a great player. His ball speeds down like a few miles an hour, but not much. And now he just shoots, you know, over par every single round. Just absolutely kind of crazy. On the <laughs> yeah, but I, I think Until going back to our triple on the last. No, sorry, I was saying yeah. Until he triples the last all. Yeah, well, back to back weeks. The rage quit. Um, I think, but going back to to outrights, I think uh, unless you're market making right, which is on Betfair or something, so you know you're backing and laying, you know, and you've got orders in on pretty much every every single player um, or a vast majority of the field. Then I, I think you can, you know, I think variance is less of a problem there. Well, it's still a problem, but um, I, I think you know. I think you have a chance of working out if you're doing something pretty badly wrong or there's something fundamentally wrong. But if you're just betting a few players every week, like you've got absolutely no way of knowing that something could be really wrong just by looking at the re- at your P&L, right? Because there's, like a golf outright is kind of, it's probably, I think in betting terms, it, it has to be one of the most random bets you can place. has to be, right? Surely, because just because of the odds and, you know, how competitive the, the fields are. Um, yeah, I would say it's almost entirely random that you could yeah. you you could go a decade and lose being the biggest yeah. winner that exists. Yeah, we agree. I mean, one of the good things actually about UK betting um, is that you can bet each way, which like on on golf um, in the shops, which massively reduces the variance. But that's a different subject. But um, yeah, I mean, you could be like consistently like 0.10 strokes better. Than the, than the market on on every bet you place. So say I don't know. Say the market rating for a player is 1.1 strokes better than average, and you've got them 1.2 better better than average, and and you're correct, right? That he is that player is 1.2 strokes better than average. Like you could be in for quite a considerable win placing those bets, and yet over a year you could do your absolute stones in. You know what I mean? You 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 could just continue to lose. Um, and that's quite, um, you know, that can be quite demoralising um, if you're betting win only. Um, if, as I say, if you're betting each way, then um, that, 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 you know, you, you only have to finish in the top five or seven, depending on the place terms, to um, to get a return, which is is quite helpful. But um, yeah, but if you're betting win only on Betfair, it's it's pretty, it can be pretty brutal, you know. Even if you have, as you say, even if you have like a big edge. How efficient do you think the Betfair exchange is right before uh, the round goes off? Is that something that could be compared to an NFL line? Is it like, oh, there's big inefficiencies? Like, what what is your opinion on that? Because I see Betfair, and I would lo- I w- I just wish I had an account because I would go all in every week on it. I think I have a ton <laughs> of edge to it, but the 
you can actually bet big amounts. So like on the yes. one hand, it must be fair, but on the other hand, like people like me cannot access it. So there's at least some signal being kept out. As someone who yes. knows it yeah. much better than me, what do you think of how good that is? How right they are? Uh, yeah. Okay. So I think in general, whenever you can bet big amounts, you have to be you have to be wary, right? That especially if you've got if you're producing off market numbers um to to what you know to what to what's out there if you can bet quite a lot of money on that then you have to be wary um and if if you're not wary then i mean it's no place of mine to say but i i I would say that you know your whole approach is kind of wrong um that said i think there are kind of i think there are fundamental reasons why betfair golf might not be as efficient as some other markets that you can bet in similar size um so from from a market making point of view if you've got to lay if you if you're if you're making prices on 156 players for a tour event right and the demand for those players is going to be extremely lumpy right you're going to have players where for whatever reason because you know like a, a recreational tipster has put them up like um Ben Coley who does provide value in in certain spots but I would I wouldn't class him as a mug. Um, you know, I think he knows his stuff, but I think when it comes to betting, I, I would kind of class him as a, as you know, as, a, as someone who does it recreationally rather than someone who's, you know, going to be in for a profit on, you know, every single bet they place. Um, you know, Steve Palmer, who writes for the Racing Post, which is like, um, a, a you know, a, a newspaper um, that's produced in the UK, he, he would be similar as well. Um those guys might have value on on certain selections and but when they put their bets up they produce quite a lot of demand that is hard for a market maker to um to meet because you know you've got even if even if you've got like 100 people who want to bet 20 quid if the odds are 80 to 1 then all of a sudden that's quite a lot of money you know that's two grand at 80 to 1 and you know and especially the the type of people that are placing those bets you can probably get away with laying 70 to 1 or 60 to 1. So I think trying to predict that demand and trying to predict what those tipsters are trying to are going to be tipping um I think that can have quite a big influence on on the market and um that can create inefficiencies. Um yeah and um I think it's underestimated how li- you know I think it's underestimated how little um of a difference you have to make you have to have in your rating to actually have to have quite a big difference on the um, on the pricing. So you know if you're 0.2 strokes bigger than the market on a player, trend you know translating that to what that doesn't sound like a lot, but translating that to actual odds that's quite a big difference, and that would show quite a big um, quite a big edge on you know on the fixed odds markets. Um, so even though that's quite a small numerical difference and there might only you know there might be just a couple of factors that are dri- that's driving that um you can show quite a big edge um for as i say what something that's quite you know quite a small um difference in the market just because of the way you know the number of runners and you know each player having to have a price etc um yeah mathematically golf is quite is quite strange in in that um small differences can actually equate to um big odds differences yeah it's kind of amazing how similar all the guys are they're all pretty good you know that even the yep. it seems like one's way better than the other but it's really it's really not too much of a difference uh from shot to shot 
I think that that's, I don't think that that needs to be the case. I think that if the golf courses were set up consistently more difficult, that it would stop being the case that, I mean, a golf course designer has a lot of latitude in how hard they can make a course, but the people setting it up, I mean, the exact same course, if we send out group easy to set it up, it might play to a 70 average. And if we set send group hard to set it up, they might play to a 75 average. I mean, a, you just put the pins a little trickier, cut the greens a bit more, and even maybe a week in advance, grow the rough a bit more. You can completely transform a course into something totally different. And I wish that they did it more because it would really separate a lot of these guys a lot more and guys who are no good that are able to contend um, would have a much trickier time doing it. And I think the reason that they don't is I would imagine like fans want birdies, which sounds stupid, but I mean, most of these tournaments, the guy that wins is 20 under par. So that must be wanted Um, because they could achieve essentially any target score they want. If you want the winner to be 20 over, no big deal. 20 under, yeah, no big deal. Like both of those can easily be done on the same course on the same week with like maybe three days notice. It does not take much to drastically change the course. Um, And maybe it's pushback from the players too, because sometimes when the players are even and they win, they, you know, Zach Johnson runs his mouth about like what a tough week it was. Um, So I don't know what, like why it's in this current equilibrium, but it needn't be, you know, it, it could be, the game could be different and it could be in the future, you know, depending on how they try to set it up from week to week. Yeah, I think I mean I think the FedEx Cup is probably a big thing in this, right? Because didn't they have an event last year where um uh, John Rahm won, I think. Um where um didn't he win with like minus 4 or something? Um and so maybe they want the um and East Lake normally plays pretty hard, right? Um winning score isn't is never too um is never too uh, low there. So maybe, um, you know, maybe they want kind of tougher setups for the, um, the FedEx cup events. I don't know if that's just speculation. Um, and maybe their view is that they want those top players to kind of win the FedEx cup because no one really wants a Billy Horschel kind of. Well, I think that, that, yeah. Um, when they had the event, when they have the events at like this BMW championship, they're usually in the Chicago area. Um, and a lot of times, the course that it's hosted at like Medina, Olympia fields, Conway farms, these courses are, I mean, you could put Conway farms. So no one shot under par any rounds. That course is impossible. So when the guy's 20 under and wins, I think it's just like a choice. Um, yeah. Rom was four under in that, but that's like the only one there is, you know, in previous ones, it's yes, 20 under. Yeah. So I don't know why why it is the way it is. It seems like from the people that I follow who I would ca- label as casual golf fans that they like the tournaments finishing around even. Yeah, it seems like most people like the US Open when it's hard. And yeah, that might yeah. get difficult week to week. But it it sure yes. would be nice yeah. if there were a few more of them at least uh where 
Yeah, I, I agree. Not, yeah. not in the sense of like, I'm not trying to respect par here. I don't care about that. No, no. You can make the par 80 and have them all be 20 under again. More so yeah. when the course is difficult, it, you know, that separates the golfers more that a guy yeah. who is okay at, you know, hitting his four iron from 231 yards into an 18 yard landing area. Like that's just harder. And when he puts it in the bunker, he might make seven instead of the usual, oh yeah, it's either to 20 feet or a 40 foot chip, no big deal, you know? And that's yep. in effect that can be, that can be two courses back to back. One could be whatever. And the next is like, oh, you're completely fucked. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree about wanting to, um, wanting to differentiate between, um, you know, the, the good, good guys and, um, and the bad guys. And even, you know, even kind of just rewarding different skill sets across the year. You know, it's um, I feel like the way that a lot of tour courses are set up, it kind of aggression pays, um, and that's okay, that, that's fine. But wouldn't maybe like to see a couple, you know, a couple more events where um, you know, middle of the green is is a good shot on the, the vast majority of the holes because I think that rewards a different skill set to um to what normally gets rewarded on. The PGA Tour would be good for betting as well because um, if you could identify those opportunities, then you could, you know, you could actually get some some decent bets in um, on some of the more conservative players. Um, so that would suit me. But that the PGA Tour are listening to me any anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, I think that's why golf's appealing to bet on too because all of these things could change in the future and it's like unsolvable because of that, that the courses that are being played on the way that's being played, the skills that are being rewarded, the skills the players have are just constantly changing week to week. And because of that, any sort of analysis you do, even if it has really good data in it is not going to be a hundred percent useful. And even if you contextualize everything perfectly, you still don't really know exactly how the course is going to play that week. You don't know like how that player's skills are that week. It just kind of is always different. Yes. Yeah. Agreed. All right. We've got a question here. Is there anything to the notion of certain guys not being able to close? Have you ever backed or faded um, on this, on this uh, topic, uh, on this strategy? Yeah. Um, sadly, I'm 10, I tend to be on the guys that have got, um, you know, have got bad records at, at closing. Um, it's hard to quantify it, but I feel I do feel like the the market overreacts to something that's a small sample size. Um, but then I do kind of feel that, that I feel like saying, "Oh no, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist," and you know, these guys will close. An equal, all you know, all these guys will close an equal amount of, of the time is kind of burying your head in the sand a bit. Um, so I, you know, there are some things you can look at. Um, you know, you could look at pressure rounds, which um, I define as a player being in the last group or being within two of the lead or having um, greater than ten percent win probability going into the last round. Um, so you can, you can look at those sort of things um, rather than just kind of like flat out wins or or flat out xG. Not XG, no, strokes gained. XG is a soccer term. Um, so yeah, you you can look at that sort of thing. But I, I even, I think you can probably go even deeper and maybe sort of, 
maybe look at the type of shots that players play when they're in contention and they're under pressure. You know, how how bad are their how bad are their bad misses, or are, are they staying aggressive? Are they staying true to what they normally do? You know, you say you've got say for example you've got a Sebastian Munoz who's I think um, you know the I think the consensus is that he's a pretty aggressive player um, across you know I think most people would maybe say that um, I think he's got a bit of a reputation for being quite aggressive um, at pins. If he starts backing off and then you know bailing out ten yards left and you know leaving himself you know tricky two puts etc. Then that you know when he's in contention then that's maybe not a good sign that he's handling it well. Um, but then I also think handling pressure is just a, a case of repetition as well, right? So, you know, the more that you end up in that pressure situation, the better that you're going to become at handling it. Um, and I think I think that has to be respected too. I think saying that, you know, this guy's had 10 pressure rounds and he's kind of sucked in all of them. So he's going to suck in his 11th. Um, that might be true, but I think I think the baseline is that he will probably suck a little bit less. Does that make sense? Um, yeah. So, I think you can get used to it a bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's kind of telling when, like, when Victor Hovland won that opposite field event, I think, in Puerto Rico. He made, like, yeah. a, you know, 12-foot birdie putt in the last hole to win. And in I the interview, he, he was like, oh, I was shaking. I, I don't even remember what was happening. I was, like, so nervous. I couldn't believe it. I, like, I still don't know what happened. He was out of his mind with nerves to a degree that it was like almost impossible to believe. But then, you know, if I put myself in that situation, maybe I would feel the same way. So I think it is easy to assume that the guys are like, Oh yeah, whatever. He's a pro athlete. He's used to this. A lot of times they might not be used to it. And especially when they're young or have no status, like your status on the PGA tour is very not permanent. And yes, if you are secure, it might be one thing to be like, oh, you know, I'm going to finish first or sixth this week. But even that is like, well, I might make 1.5 million or 200K and my wife wants us to like buy a new house at a nicer place and I have no money right now. And it would, it would sure would be nice to make this putt and finish first. Um, I think that that sort of stuff is really, really important for some players and can affect their games in either a positive or negative way. But then there's also yeah. a lot of players that none of that is happening for, you know, like when Justin Thomas is hitting a shot, the only thing that matters is what he thinks of the legacy he's leaving. You know, he's got all the tournaments he could ever win all the money ever. And he has another 15 years on tour in front of him, if not 20. So the only thing that's nerve wracking for him is, am I going to win this tournament and have more wins than losses in my record? And it could be even be a positive that could fire him up. You know, I think there are some players that kind of get up for those types of situations. And if there's no like life stuff at stake, it can be very freeing and it could be even powerful for the right player. Yeah. I think Justin Thomas probably gets more nervous when he sees Steve stands walking over to him after, um, <laughs> after he's made a, a questionable comment on uh, one of the yeah. No, but, I'm glad that he uh, sought the help that he needed. Though uh, I'm really glad that he uh, <laughs> got up in there and you know corrected his behavior. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of 
I've never actually been the biggest JT fan, but I, I you know, I've, I actually gained some respect over, you know, how he, you know, he stood up and said, look, you know, I've messed up really, really badly here. And, you know, I'm going to try and improve and not, you know, I'm going to try and not do it again. And, you know, to do that kind of live on t- TVs, you know, takes, um, takes some, you know, takes some stern, stern stuff to do it. Um, I feel like I, I lost going, some respect for him when he did that. it seems like it took him trying to sound good being a vital characteristic of him for that to happen you know i feel like he loved it now he's like oh yeah i've I've been saved or whatever you know (laughs) maybe but i I don't know i don't i think we might have to um i think we might have to agree to disagree on that um (laughs) I think um, I think he was genuine, genuinely kind of remorseful. But again, it's hard to know, isn't it? It's hard to know. Oh um, yeah, I think it was genuine too. It's more so like, yeah, I'm not sure if I want that to be a genuine character trait. <laughs> yeah, 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 understood. But I think going back to to pressure and how players deal with pressure, I think I think the the, the main value is probably looking at. Not looking at the, their results, I think that's okay. But you're never going to get a good good enough sample size, right? And um, I think the market's going to, always going to bake that in pretty well. Um, I think the next evolution of this is maybe to look at how how players deviate from what they normally do in terms of shot selection and where they miss. And you know, are they leaving puts short? I know a lot of play, a lot of um, golf commentators seem to think that if a player leaves a, a put short, then um, it means they're feeling the pressure more. Um, I don't have a view on that, but um, that that might be, you know. If I think that only... I think it could be pressure, but also that is a key element for players that are bad at putting are going to leave putts yeah. short, um, not because of any nonsense like oh you can't you know blah blah blah, but more so the way that a good putter is hitting putts, they're going to yes. go like two or three feet past the hole most of the time. Um, they're just going to be very aggressive in the stroke they're making, whereas bad putters are thinking about that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's partially real that you want to leave yourself a shorter second putt because that matters, and also partly mental where you aren't able to calibrate yourself hitting the putt um, because you're nervous about four feet by which is fine to be nervous about because you might miss that one. You know, it might be a perfectly rational fear, but just the bad putters are going to be doing that because it's more of a survival technique for a bad putter to leave a putt short. Um, I mean, that's kind of why I've always been so amazed that Bubba, I mean, I think Bubba's like the worst putter in the world, but it's not borne out in any data for, you know, years. And it's just astonishing to me that every year he's able to get a couple putts to go because he, I mean, anything he makes just trickles in the front edge and he routinely misses putts by a mile. And it looks like he's lagging five foot putts, you know, just trying to two putt. Um, There are a lot of things like that. So I don't know. It's hard to distill pressure versus being bad at certain things and wanting to just being really scared of losing your position, you know, whereas on Thursday, it's like, okay, I need to go shoot some round here on Sunday. It's like, well, I, I don't want to three putt. I, I don't want to finish outside the top 14 because then I'll lose my exemption for next week. It's more like you just play a more conservative style of golf um, to 
run away from your deficiencies as a player. Yep. That makes sense. Okay, let's see what we got here. So there's another question which you you informed me before the podcast started is possibly a troll question. Does strokes gained approach matter? And how many second shot golf courses you reckon exist? Yeah, I mean I'm kind of um I'm not I'm not a very big strokes gained approach fan um in general, just because um I feel like it re- it it kind of only rewards good shots and um any bad shots because the the way it works, you know, if you put the difference between putting a shot to um two feet instead of four feet or even holding out um is pretty monumental and is like way more than putting it to twenty feet instead of thirty feet. Yeah, you know, that that the second miss is probably worse, right? I mean obviously it depends on the pin location and whatever, but the the general idea is that the closer to the hole you get, um, the more that the strokes gained approach numbers are just way off. Um, I think that's a pretty pretty well understood concept now. Um, I, I think um, Rufus and um, the Data Golf guy um, were talking about it the other the other week on on Bet the Process. Um, so I think that's pretty you know I think that's a pretty um, well understood concept now. Um, in terms of second shot golf courses, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, long irons and I think that the thing with second shot is that, and, and strokes gained approach in general as well, is that um, wedge play is like a completely different skill to long iron play, and yet they all get grouped into the, the same bucket, you know what I mean? I think that's totally wrong. Um, yeah, completely. The idea I mean, that someone is... I think- I think one of the interesting things about Bryson is I, wedge plays are different than irons, are different than drivers, are different than chipping, are different than putting. And a lot of that is because of the mechanics of your swing. So like if you swing in a way that makes your long irons good, it will make your driver bad. And the reason for it is because you know the driver is nine degrees, the long irons are 25 degrees, one of them is longer than the other, heavier than the other, different lie angles. Like the clubs are completely different. The shot is being, your swing naturally has to be completely different to deliver the club right to the ball. What makes Bryson so interesting is that unlike your average PGA Tour player, who's necessarily going to be good and bad at different things, if you're good at one, it kind of excludes you from being good at the other. Um, Yeah. Like Zach Johnson, for example, is a good wedge player, and he hits kind of that trap draw that a lot of good wedge players hit, where they very yeah. low right to left ball flight. And that exact same motion makes for a bad driver of the golf ball. Um, whereas Bryson, because all his clubs are the same length, weight, well, not all, but most of his clubs are the same length, weight, lie, and he has the same swing with all of them. He's kind of unique in that he's similar skills at all of them, or could be at least a lot more naturally than someone else. Um, so I think that that it's it's hard to know how that will progress moving forward. When I was playing golf, I felt like you know you needed to have different swings. Like oh, I have a three iron right now. Like I need to hit a three iron shot versus I have a wedge. I need to hit a wedge shot. 
And of course, that's what neat players on the PGA Tour need to do. But it can be a lot more freeing if you use the club rules to your advantage to try to just have one swing or two swings. You know, just minimize the amount of muscle memory you need to do so that you can approach every shot a lot better. And I feel like, I mean, when Bryson's clicking, it looks very robotic. You know, like the swings are the same, the shots are the same. But that's for a good reason, because the, the clubs are the same. You know, they actually are the same. Um, yes. So it's so unnatural to use those types of clubs. And I don't think it provides much of an inherent advantage. And there could be even like big things you lose out on from going down there. I've never tried to play with those clubs. It might even be a fool's errand. But the current status quo of if you're good at one, you're bad at the other. I don't know if that has to remain the case and conceivably like the next advancement in golf technology might be some company or player or company player combo figuring out how to better um, calibrate themselves across all shots so that you don't need to be a one trick pony. And, you know, I do a couple things well and I play courses that reward those and stay away from those that don't, but more so trying to get your own skills on the same page. I've honestly never thought of that. It's um, yeah, that's really interesting, actually. Um, yeah, I've never thought of um, the idea that Bryson kind of might um, you know, might might be able to sort of minimise the um, the variance between his different his different shot types. I mean, obviously, the, the driver thing is is a complete anomaly, right? Because he's literally trying to kind of break his body. Um, <laughs> But um, yeah, as you say, yeah, more you know, so, more so across the irons, kind of within yes, strokes yeah. gained approach, because obviously the putting and chipping are naturally different. But yeah. a hundred yard shot to a two hundred and forty yard shot, where they're two sixty or whatever, where they're all using the same sort of irons to try to hit it close to the hole or you know achieve some good outcome. Yeah, but I mean, as you said, that the the idea is that this is this is kind of a big thing, right? That you know the amount of long iron shots versus the long, you know, the amount of wedge shots is kind of a big course fit thing. And yet no one, because it, well, not no one, but because it's grouped into the same strokes gain category, it's like, oh, well, just just strokes gain approach, isn't it? And it's like, well, no, not really. Um, So, yeah, I think that's kind of a big thing. Um, And, um, probably get i think that's um that gets overlooked by um you know kind of the, the data golf people and um and all that yeah and it's it's easy to overlook because i think with any golf analysis you're doing especially if you have medium to good data and you do something very you know clever and robust and you know useful with it the answer you're going to get is always like nothing matters and <laughs> It's just because things like that are not measured perfectly, you know, like you're just going to miss out on the inherent um, positions that better golfers put them in versus worse golfers. And you're going to kind of like always be over regressing um, because of that. And you might, you might be close. Like I, I still do it. Obviously you kind of have to do it. Um, But those are the sorts of blind spots that you can obviously have a lot of. Yes, yeah, for sure.
All right, let's see what else we got here. Um, oh, I thought this was kind of a good question. Um, a big syndicate freezes its model slash approach as it is now, but continues to bet. When in the future do they cease to be plus EV? How does this vary across sports? So I think for this question to work, um, you know, I feel like most big syndicates and most betters are like, you know, comparing their number to the market. So if there wasn't an edge, they would stop betting, you know? Um, but for the purposes of this question, maybe, maybe it just means how many available bets will you be able to make or, you know, where will that go? Um, yeah. What do you think for golf? I feel like for golf, it's probably like two years from today where I think that the data is going to be a lot more available and out there and more interesting things are going to continue to be done to where the current approach you might have might just give you adverse selected um, picks where you're just short the data other people have that have been updating and are long the stuff. You know what I mean? Like you'll just continue to bet on Lucas Glover at, courses that are bad at putting or some guy that has missed a lot, you know, is even imagine if there was like whole level data, kind of like they have in um, MLB where it shows yeah. like what part of the hole the ball went into. Um, I mean, the, the number one reason by why putting is so random is that if you hit a putt from 10 feet, zero inches to one inch away, it might be worth two strokes. And if you hit it to zero inches away, it's worth one stroke and that's a large difference yeah. for one inch. Um, but if you could further decompose that into like, Oh, this guy's you know, missing a lot on the left or, you know, he's, his putts are going in right in the middle versus this guy's are going in, you know, 20 percentile on the left. Um, depending on what data exists out there, if you freeze your approach, you're just short all that innovation, you know, you're just going sure. to be missing all this, all the edges that identifies. And I think that golf, golf is in such a weird spot because they have all that shot link data, but it's you know very difficult to get slash impossible. And the European Tour is now like has a rival shot link to that is going to continue getting better. I think that yep. within a couple of years, there's going to be kind of like an explosion of new data that if your approach is really good right now and you're kind of already taking into account these things in a worse way than you could if you had like a good algo fit, then maybe it wouldn't be so bad. But if you're kind of ignoring them because they don't exist, um, then yeah, you'd probably be done pretty soon, I would think, um, in golf. Now in something like NBA, I'm not sure if that's the case. I feel like that probably happened a couple of years ago that it probably wouldn't innovate a ton in the next two years. But golf specifically seems like it's kind of at an inflection point. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I agree with all comments really. Um, although maybe on the NBA thing, I think, um, you know, I, I think maybe it's possibly a mistake to think that the innovation is just going to is is, is going to dry up because people will always kind of think of like really random shit to do, right? And then, you know, if you don't have that versus someone that has, then you kind of more automatically at the disadvantage, even if, even if the you know the difference is marginal, adverse selection then becomes kind of a big problem um, if you can't change when you're able to bet, um, which is one of the caveats in the question. Um, yeah, I think this is more 
I think this is more of a, a data question. I think the question, I th yeah, I think you identified correctly that um, where the answer lies to this is how quickly sports are going to innovate with what data is available, right? Because that's that's going to be the main driver of um, of of, how, of of what will change kind of um, market price rather than any. I think most you know most syndicates are pretty good at processing the data that they have. I mean, it's not. I don't think they're doing anything. None of them are doing um, anything particularly innovative, but um, yeah, I think um, I think they're pretty good at, with what they have. Um, and how quickly they fall off um, will depend on how quickly new data becomes available. Um, yeah, I don't really have a lot to add to that. Um, I think in terms of time scales across sports, um, obviously collecting that data has to become has to be viable for the sport um, itself, right? So if there's no customer for the day, for example, no no one's going to want shot data in snooker unless some, you know, some snooker's quite popular in China then, unless some Chinese broadcaster wants like shot level data for for um, for snooker shots, then no one's going to bother collecting that because it would be too, it'd just be too difficult and no one wants it. So um, the time scale in, in snooker is, would would be, you know, a lot. It'd be. I think you'd have a lot, um, a lot more longevity versus something um, like NFL, where you know you've already got next-gen stats, um, which is you know seems to get better every season. Is my understanding. I've never actually looked into it very closely, but um, you know the, the people that do bet NFL quite seriously. You know, I think that's um, that's their area of focus now, rather than sort of like the um, the box scores and everything like that, which is seems you know. Quite 2010. Um, so yeah, I think I think um, the more commercially viable it is for a, for a sport to collect that data, the quicker that rival syndicates or betters will start to process that data, and then at that point, it's pretty much game over. Yeah, game over sounds no good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, although I mean, if you if you have some sort of unique way that you're using the data or something else you're bringing yeah. to the data it's kind of like you said earlier where it might never be game over which is kind of a nice goal to aspire to in sports betting is yeah having it never I mean, be I, over I, yeah I, I know a couple of soccer bettors who have really got quite a decent edge at just kind of watching games and you know noticing things that you can't i suppose you could pick up in data but for whatever reason they're not it might be um they're just hard to specify yeah no i mean it's the same way in golf where it's really hard to specify like is this guy doing something that's very good or very bad just through the data and sometimes yeah. it can be easier to see and if you yeah. were better at knowing why you saw it then you could be the king of like if you were able to better categorize the data or maybe like contextualize it a touch better in some way that's adding in what you see. Um, but a lot of times if that's not priced in the market at all and you're not quantifying it exactly right, but are kind of in the ballpark, it can still be, you know, 90% as useful, even though you don't have it dead on, but it's just that the market's not really using it or they might be using yeah. it. in. I mean, I feel like golf's that way with guys who like can't close or can't putt is it's just kind of like some random guess where the market doesn't want to bet on some guy who can't close, even if the price makes no sense, or they yeah. don't want to bet on some guy who can't putt 
And if you can kind of like ballpark quantify that stuff, even if it's not good, it's like the market's not even trying to quantify it. They're just blindly against these factors, um, which sucks because then you're going to be on the factors that like the players who suck or you're against the guys who are good. Um, but that's just what it seems like to me in golf specifically and in other sports too, where there's spots where no one wants to bet on it. So you are kind of paid to be the person who does bet on it. Yes. Yeah. I think that does happen quite a lot in golf. Um, but um, mind you, I mean, I mean, looked at the last six months, it seems that those players always get beat. So um, maybe we're yeah. the real super. <laughs> they do always <laughs> lose. <laughs> yeah. But I think, I think even, even the time to process. So say you're watching a soccer match, right. And you notice, I don't know, a formation change or something, you know, something within the game that thinks, right, that's, I'm going to, I've seen that and now I'm going to play some bets. I think if, it, you know, having that data fed, you might, you might be able to feed that data into a, you know, a live model, but if it takes you 60 seconds to gather it and then process it and then bet it. And meanwhile, the guy who's just seen it has clicked, has already clicked the max bet button three times. You've, you've got no bet. So, you know, you, you can you can be in a situation where a syndicate a syndicate can identify the same edge as someone watching with their eyes, but due to the you know the the processing time, there's there's actually nothing they can do about it versus the guy just watching. Um, and that is kind of that is kind of like the um the end boss status that you you talk about because if if you can't if there's you know if the processing time is is a problem and someone's beating you to it, then there's no real way that that can ever be eroded unless the game fundamentally changes, I think, or unless the syndicate buys that person off or whatever, um, which is, which would be a nice situation to be in. But yeah. Yeah. That's kind of a constant too, where any bet you're making that seems good or is really good to your model or, you know, you're betting a lot of your money on as long as you're not betting on like, you know, off market shit. But if you're betting into real markets, with real limits, you're never ever going to know for sure that it's good. And there's always going to be some like, Oh, I could wait and like run this for another two minutes or verify that this number is right. But like you said, the number will be gone by then. And maybe it was, maybe it'll go higher. Like maybe it's a bad bet and you are missing things, but in practice of betting into real markets at real limits, you're kind of always going to be, not a hundred percent on it, you know, or there's some things that might just be your regular bets or whatever, but in the spots where like you think it's really good and are betting a lot, it's probably because it's not as good as you think it is, but it it could be. And that sort of weird limbo area is where all your bets are going to be placed. So if you're overconfident and fire away at all of them, you might go broke. And if you're underconfident and are like, Oh, uh, well, you know, it's, I show two and it's six. I'm not sure on this one. And then it's all of a sudden five, you're going to miss all your bets. So it's a very fine line, uh, professional gambling. <laughs> yeah. I think this, I think Sutton asked a question about this as well. What the different mentality between betting on an exchange versus betting with like, a, you know, a traditional bookmaker. Um, I think if you class Pinnacle and Chris as exchanges for, for the moment, because, well, I think Pinnacle definitely operates like an exchange and, Chris is a bit of a bit in between, but let's let's um, let's define like traditional bookmaker as kind of a soft bookie, right? Like your um, DraftKings sportsbook, for example. 
then I think this I think what you've just said kind of nails it in terms of you know on an exchange like you've got a proper market most of the time this is you have a proper proper market maker putting up a price who kind of knows what they're doing got a good track record you know maybe um and then if you you know prices price might be available in decent size and if you're taking that bet it's like well you know you should kind of be asking yourself not every time um but you know i think a good thing to do is kind of ask to ask yourself why that price exists whereas if you're betting you know if you're having the same bet with um a traditional sports book then the chances are that it's just some compiler who's got it wrong or you know just one person's um opinion who's kind of like not really bothered does that make sense yeah totally it's like the depth of the market you're betting to into is likely to have a certain amount of mistakes and the more people yeah. that have bet into it or have seen it the less likely it is that there's a mistake whereas if it's just one you know if it's a dead that's why that's why like when you have, go on the progression of beating openers to betting real sports with real limits um most people can't make it or most people's models won't because it's so easy to bet openers because there's no adverse selection by definition you know like whoever's opening yeah. some line it's not going to be good no matter what you know they just don't have anyone bright working for them to make something good and if you're literally the first person to bet the stone cold open and if you can do it in places that other books copy or in markets that there's decent limits i mean you can make a good living betting stone cold openers yeah but when you go to betting real markets with real limits you're always going to be wrong because like the skills that you needed to have at the open of being well calibrated and not having biases, none of those matter. Whereas at the end, that's all you're going to show. Like the people with better models than you will have bet the stuff that you would. And the stuff remaining is things you're wrong on because you're not properly um, quantifying some factor. So it's it's just a totally different ball game of betting openers versus actually betting real sports at real limits you know and there's not going to be like you said earlier if you have plus if you have pick and it's plus 180 you're guaranteed wrong in a real market with real limits because if you think you're right it means that every person in the world is wrong except you and like if you just have some you know half-ass model you built in like a week you really think that that's the state of the art <laughs> like that's what you're saying if you think it's plus 180 um whereas on the opener you might be right. Like you just got to be bet online burns, you know, like his stuff's guaranteed. <laughs> no good. Like we know that. <laughs> yeah. I don't think the, the irony of discussing this um, probably shouldn't be lost considering we spent 20 minutes discussing betting on snooker earlier. No. <laughs> um, yeah. Do you have any uh, master's tats this week? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, let me get some stuff up. One second. Um, yeah, I, I tend... what's your opinion on the Jordan Spieth debate? Jordan Spieth is the uh, third betting favorite as we speak to win the tournament. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't, I, I, you know, I obviously don't agree with that. Um, I think, um, I think Data Golf have him at something, something like fifty to one or something. Um, I could quickly check. Uh, let's see what I have. Um, 
yeah, plus forty seven fifty. I mean, I obviously think that's wrong as well. Um, I mean, my fair on Spieth is is twenty four to one, um, which is probably too big. But um, yeah, as I say, this is probably one of those situations actually where you you probably subjectively adjust maybe a little bit down, um, just because of the you know the volume of money that's available at shorter prices than that, and you know. You, he did look pretty good last week, um, much better than he, he has looked previously when kind of contending. But, you know, last week it felt like an actual genuine kind of win. Whereas before, when he's been contending, it's like, well, you know, he's holed out three times and he's hit a, he had a ball, hit off a tree and like ran off, you know, hit a spectator on the head and it's gone to like four foot or something. Um, and so, yeah, last time was the last week he actually looked like a proper golfer, which was... Um, yeah, which was interesting to see, but no, obviously don't think he should be the the third favourite. Um, so I think he he is back, but um, not to the extent that the the outright markets are showing for sure. Yeah, I mean it's it's gonna be interesting to watch. I feel like he's uh, such a head case that he's so influenced by. You know, you talk about gamblers needing to keep your head and going through downswings and upswings and trying to remain accurate in what you think. Spieth is like, you know, he hits three shots in a row that are good and he's on to the next hole. Like I'm the fucking man. And then he hits one in the water and it's like, Oh my God, Michael, I knew I was going to, I knew I was going to do that. I had a dream last night that I was going to hit it in the, oh, I just can't believe that's such a huge mistake. You know, he's, he really rides even not looking at his results, just looking at him playing, his confidence swings so much. And in yeah. golf, like it's, it's not a sport that requires an, any intellect. You know, there's a hole, you aim at it. You try to repeat the motion you've repeated thousands of times to hit the ball at it. You usually succeed, you know, go do it again. Um, I think that there's a fundamental reason why it makes sense that he swings so much in his performance because he swings so much while he plays golf. Um, yeah, mentally. Yeah. But to the degree it is here. I mean, I think that if you're long speed this week, there's, you have no chance of winning money in the long run, uh, betting sports. And I hope you continue. <laughs> yeah, I think that, yeah, I think that's for sure. I think that's, um, for, I definitely think that's true if you're betting um, outrights. Match matchup prices are a bit more um, competitive, but I still think um, yeah, they're more reasonable. Yeah, yeah. I still think it's probably worth fading a little bit in those. But um, yeah, um, a couple of I mean, course history I, I tend to find is you know pretty important actually at Augusta um, for whatever reasons. Obviously, lots of hyperbole. You know, play, people players say that or. Oh, um, you know, every time that you come, you you learn you learn a load more about the course and you know where you can miss, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think those things are probably all true, and they are borne out in the data um, to a certain extent. Um, so, um, I mean, a few players on Betfair that I like: um, Louis Hazen at 100. I think that's a good price. Um, Adam Scott at 100. I think that's pretty good as well. Um, slightly weird one. It hasn't been playing too well, but um, Shown bits of bits of form. Justin Rose at 140, I think, is is good. Um, he did finish second in in Saudi, and then um, he was up there contending in the Arnold. Um, 
at, at Bayhill um, until he had to withdraw with back spasms. Although um, that's Mr. Palmer, sure how, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> not sure how um, legitimate that was because he um, he took a, he had like a nine the hole before or something. So um, don't know if it was just a rage quit or whatever. But um, yeah, um, yeah. So those are three I, I, I quite like. Um, yeah, Scott is weird because he's. Augusta's greens are so difficult that you would think he wouldn't do well there, but he kind of does. And then if you're used yeah. to them or if you get there early, that's another thing with putting is that, I mean, from week to week, the green speeds and slopes are drastically different. And even the grass type can be different that going from one to the other or being comfortable on the surface can matter a ton and if you're terrible at putting at Augusta, but get there, you know, 10 days before the tournament starts and just hit 800 putts every day, you're not terrible anymore. So I think that's yeah, that's can, one of the things with Augusta and one of the things with like any data analysis is like you've mentioned, oh, knowing where to miss it matters. So I'm going to use like how many holes they've played at Augusta at some variable. Well, yeah, that might be useful, but there's no reason that that like needs to continue to be useful in the future especially if guys like get there a little earlier or if, you know, Victor Hovland plays practice rounds with everyone and just for some reason tells them like, Oh yeah, don't miss left here. And like, Oh, you really don't want to hit that bunker on four. Um, there's a lot of things that you could find in data that make sense and are real that do not continue. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I heard, um, I, I do not, I quite like Carlos Ortiz as well for, a, who I seem to bet on every week. Um, for a top 10 and top 20. Um, but disappointingly, I heard earlier that he only, he says he only understands 10% of the course. So um, that's quite <laughs> concerning considering I yeah. put a shitload on him for finishing the top 20. So, um, that's less than I would like him to know. Although I don't have anything on him. He got, he, he's one of those that started on Betfair at like 550 and now is now down to 310. It's kind of interesting. Oh, that some I mean, of the, I guess that's just determined by, what random people who have access to Betfair are willing to bet. Cause some it seems like every week there's, you know, 10 guys that should be 300 and they start around 350 and some of them end 700 and some of them end 150. Yeah. Kind I of mean, no even, rhyme or reason even, almost. Even a 50 quid bet can, can actually take quite a, you know, the thing is with that, you know, someone betting 50 or hundred quid or even 10 people betting 10 quid can actually like spook that quite a lot. But have you seen that there's a load of steam on um, Brian Harmon, of all people? He's been absolutely battered. Um, I think he was about 300 earlier. Um, let me double check. Uh, yeah, Harmon is weird because I feel like he's gotten a bit longer this year. Um, yeah, he has for sure. And he's such a little guy. <laughs> like He's so small that getting longer, he's kind of naturally constrained in. Yes. Um, but it could just be like long odds lefty thing. People love playing lefties at Augusta, which I, I think is not, makes no sense essentially. Um, especially it makes sense for reasons that can be ex better explained, um, by other factors, not just their leftiness, yeah, but yeah, sure. it might, it, maybe it's just that. And he's been playing okay recently. The, the one legitimate good thing in his favor is I feel like Brian Harmon's a really, really good putter and like rolls yeah. it really nice. And conceivably maybe he's played some rounds here because he uh he went to college in the area and i think he's from georgia so he might have played a lot of rounds on um 
kind of greens like this. I'm not sure if the Augusta greens are similar to the area, but I think that's kind of an underrated thing in golf is how comfortable is the guy on the course? Not like, a, oh, I grew up near here. I feel not homesick in my heart, but more like how many repetitions have you taken on this specific grass type under these specific yeah. conditions? And if it's a lot, you are going to be better than if it's not a lot, you know? Yeah, that data is just so difficult to get though, and so yeah, impossible and, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you'd have to, you kind of have to stalk every every player. You know, you'd have to go through like, well, I, I don't know what. How would you even go about it? You know, would you kind of stalk them on Instagram, every, you know, and see, you know, God knows, right. but um, <laughs> I don't know how you would even go go about getting, you know, getting that. Maybe you could look at where they, you know, where they played college golf and stuff. That would, that would probably help. But um, yeah, yeah, it seems like a and even that's hard to know because like Spieth played in Austin, but for a short period of time, and I feel like Austin Country Club is a terrible course for him. Um, and he played, I guess, okay on it. Um, but like, it it could be a great course for Dylan Fratelli and a not great great course for Spieth. And they grad and they were two years apart at UT. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's just always hard to define exactly what it is that people are doing well um, in certain spots. Yeah, agreed. All right. We've been going for two hours, 12 minutes here. Got any uh, last topics? Anything we didn't get to? Uh, I don't think so. I think um, not unless you can think of anything. Um, no. I think it's good. I mean, we were going to do golfers as social network characters or entourage, but you have mentioned that you yeah, don't watch don't any watch TV, TV shows at all. Yeah, it's a bit, <laughs> of, a, bit of a problem. Um, yeah. <laughs> kind of grind, grind sports like a, like a robot. Sad, really, but yeah. It is what it is. <laughs> we could talk, about, could talk about horses for a little bit, um, total horses and stuff like that. Yeah, what's the deal with those? Is it can you win? Is it possible for a normal person to win? Um, if you're betting fixed odds, definitely, and like you know, a lot no, of if you're betting tote, like if you're betting in America on tote, oh, I see. just um, like the typical going to the track or getting the track and maybe getting a small rebate, but not finding the odds at some book or you know trying to beat the starting price or whatever. More like just betting into the actual pool. Yeah, I mean the, the biggest. The biggest players have the biggest rebates, right? I think that's a pretty, um, I think that's a pretty well-known fact. Uh, you know, the biggest syndicates, um, so they have the biggest rebates. They have all the market control, and uh, you know, essentially the the small guy betting into the market with, you know, little, little to no rebates has got kind of no chance of winning on pari mutual bets. Um, yeah, it's it's really difficult and. Um, yeah, you know, the best thing for people to do in that situation is just to try and bet fixed odds, um, as you know, however they can. Whether I know that's pretty difficult in um, in America, um, in other countries, obviously it's a lot easier. But um, yeah, as far as tote betting goes, it's extremely difficult. And the people that are, you know, the groups that are influencing the market really do kind of know their stuff. Um, I think if you if you have inside information on a trainer or a horse or a jockey or whatever. Um, you know, and you, you regularly get um, information saying that 
you know, X-Horses work well in gallops or whatever, or, you know, get information from a stable. I think that, that can be worth something. But um, even then, you, you're fighting against the rebate quite quite heavily. Um, and I think you've got to have really good information, I think, to, to try and make that pay on, on parimutuel betting. Why, why doesn't someone try to create a racetrack that offers a lower takeout and builds the track, you know, big investment, billions of dollars, and starts operating and their advertising slogan is everyone else has a 20% takeout. We have 10 and they make 10 instead of 20, but ideally just get to suck some of that market into their pocket. Why does no one do that? I think, um, I just think the, the economics of, of, of actually doing that don't really work. You know, if, if you're, if you're spending, if you're trying to get people through the door every Saturday night or Friday night or whatever nights you race, um, you, you know, and those people aren't, um, are professionals, you know, they're just going for a night out. They're not interested in making any sort of money or whatever, you know, they might, and they'll place a few, um, you know, tote bets or pay mutual bets. Um, you kind of need to get the maximum you can off those customers, um, and ten percent just isn't going to do it. Um, or a, you know, a lower, a lower takeout just isn't going to do it. Um, with that, you kind of need to for, for it to all work. You kind of need to get the maximum you can out of the out of those customers. I think. I mean, I, I've never actually, obviously, never been involved in um, the actual running of a racetrack or anything, but that that's kind of my understanding um, of why. Of why you wouldn't do that, but they would still be making money, or no? Like the, their fixed costs are so much that they need twenty percent to operate. Could is it possible so, yeah. that some track in the COVID era opens that doesn't need twenty percent to operate? Like it seems that that twenty percent number cannot be state of the art. Like they must be able to cut costs somewhere, or someone who is trying, like there's no incentive for the people that are getting business at 20 right now. But if you and I wanted to start a track to get some money into our own pockets, couldn't we improve upon that somehow? Um, maybe, but I think, I think you'd be probably surprised at the amount of kind of fixed costs that are involved in just even in opening the doors, you know, um, you have track maintenance for one, you know, that that's, that seems like quite an expensive gig. Um, animal welfare standards have to be, you know, to an acceptable level. You know, you have to have people on hand, vet, veterinary staff, etc. Um, yeah, and I, I think once you start adding up all those all those costs, even to run a race with no spectators, right? Because th- those are all things that it doesn't matter if you get five thousand through the door or zero through the door. Vet costs, track prep, etc., has to be paid for. To, to even hold a race um and then you've got wear and tear on stuff like you know maybe even, you know stuff like starting stalls tractors for um for track preparation those those are pretty those can be pretty expensive i think um i don't actually know about that but um yeah um so i, I think um yeah i think those costs are pretty prohibitive um maybe i'm wrong but it seems like um it doesn't seem like a very good business opportunity um yeah yeah makes sense yeah it seems like there's got to be some big number i'm just not sure if 20 is it 
And it seems so hard to create a new track. And there's so many like political considerations for getting your license and approval that it might be like kind of the cartel right now of people who have licenses who can afford to just kind of like bookies who can afford to charge minus 110 when someone could come in there and charge minus 107. It seems like someone could get in there and do 13 or 14% or something and make a, a big difference because Maybe maybe it just doesn't matter that people don't care that they can't win, but the whole yeah, fact that you just literally can't win, or you know, maybe if you're the best in the world, you can eke out a tiny edge, maybe, seems so unappealing to me that it'd be nice if there was an alternative. But yeah, there are a lot of uh, costs you got to take into account, I guess. Yeah, I think um, I think you kind of nailed it actually. Um, in that you know. The person going for a night out or whatever just doesn't care, um, and you know they'll see their um, their tote bets every race. You know they'll probably lose, and they just see it as a kind of expense, um, and anything they get back is, you know, is a bonus. And um, to those people, whether they pay ten percent or twenty percent or probably even more, but um, yeah, the, to those people, it, it doesn't really matter. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't. You know, it's possible that American mentality on on top takeout and that sort of thing might be different. But um, over here, I, I think um, I think I certainly think that people don't really care. Yeah, well, I mean, I think in America, most people don't really care either. I mean, in yeah. I used to live in Chicago, and Arlington Racetrack is a decent one out near there. There's like a train stop right by it, and people will go out and party and hang out at Arlington, and yeah, no one cares. I'll just bet whatever, bet their 100, 200 bucks and try to win and get super drunk. All right. Um, cool. I think that's probably it, right? Yep, I think that's, that's good. Nice. Cool. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Um, try and post this tomorrow, maybe before the Masters, and uh, talk to you later. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Yeah.